I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Hey, guys. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome to Spaces. For our returning listeners, thank you for coming back. Today we're discussing the multifamily and affordable housing. But before we get into that, I want to catch up, go around the room. Michelle, how has your how have your week last couple weeks been? I was actually gonna defer to Jason and let him go first. <laughs> uh okay. Last couple weeks is gonna be an absolute repeat of what I've been saying previously. It's rather busy. It's rather fast paced. Um, this is really the meat of the fourth quarter that I deal with in the year for about four weeks. That is just bananas. Yeah. Yeah. It's just screaming. It's basically firefighting every single day with some other type of problem that's going on, usually relating to schedule and shifting things around or different job site conditions that are creating some type of problem that are holding us up schedule wise. Yeah. Um, and it's usually about the middle of October through the middle of November, and then it kind of relaxes a little bit. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's in full swing right now. Oh yeah. Michelle. So it's really fascinating just how fast the weeks are going by. And I deferred to Jason cause I wanted to see if he was going to take it industry or, or <laughs> talk about kids and hockey and all those good things. No, those are all the same still too. <laughs> I mean, we've managed to pull you away from, is it soccer practice that typically goes on Monday yeah, nights? Yeah, soccer practices tonight. I had a, uh, I had a meeting out in Aliso that was going to be kind of later. So grandpa, my dad is uh, pulling duty to take, so usually my son gets dropped off by my dad mm -hmm. and then I get from Aliso over there to, to coach at six. But uh, this meeting was going to go a bit longer, so I was just like, forget it. I'm not going to even run with that. So I get kind of a night off and get to hang out with you guys in person, which is great. Nice. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, it's exciting because for the first time, I think in a long time, we've actually all been in the same room, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Demetrius does probably a, a very good job at hiding that, but it's nice <laughs> that we're all sitting together. So, yeah. Um, you know, my last couple of weeks, nothing too out of the ordinary. I actually just got back from the Bay Area. Uh, it's remarkable to see just how unrealistic home prices have gotten in that market. You know, you hear about it, but when you really see it in the flesh and I walked a couple of um, my best friends live in Campbell, California, and they live in a community that was probably built, if I were guessing, in the late 70s or early 80s. And there was a unit in there and their small lot detached, you know, zero lot line type of product. And 
there was a unit in there that was priced at over a million dollars and it it just honestly is not worth a million dollars. And so it was just, but what's fascinating is, is my friends have been watching that particular unit just to kind of see what's happening. And they actually said that they've reduced the price 50,000. And even, even now it's still not moving. Uh, the previous homeowner is out of the, out of the home. Uh, it's staged. So when we walked in, uh, it was just, you know, an open house with, but staged furniture. And so just interesting to see what's going to happen here over the next several months. Wow. Um, for me, following our, our technology, our late technology theme of the last few episodes, on the work side, technology has bit me in the butt. Really? <laughs> um, so I have a project right now where the client has a uh, has someone that's supposedly, in air quotes, managing the project. And as I've been trying to follow these emails and, and coordinating with this group that's supposedly managing the project, I've deciphered that, and it's interesting. So the this company, from what I gather, they consult, they're, they're just a consulting operation. They consult all the work, I believe, locally here in the States, and then they outsource the project management to like the Philippines, which usually it's in reverse. It's kind of weird. Yeah. And when I figured that out, I was like, this is going to hit me, come up and bite me in the butt later. And of course, just uh, this past week. Or it could be a trip to the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't would think, look at it that way. <laughs> I don't think the client knows that they're set up that way. I've just been kind of figuring it out as I track the emails. But um, yeah, so that's been a pain trying to deal with that. Uh, and then on the other front, just on the personal side, I went to this uh, place recently. I don't know if you guys have been to it in downtown LA called Two Bit Circus. No. So it's like a futuristic Dave and Busters. And when you walk in, they have uh, a round bar. And then off to the side, they have a lot of different games that are kind of more of the interactive style where there's sensors. So uh, I'll, I'll upload on our Instagram a video of me on one of these silly games. But there's sensors that detect your movements and things like that. And they have an area for virtual reality. So there's all these virtual reality games. Then they have, um, uh, what do you call it, the the escape rooms. And they have a, a interesting thing is the robotic bartender. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, they, so they have a bartender that uh, that's just gears and whatnot that mix uh, simple drinks for you. Huh. So where where in LA is this? This is downtown LA. It's like right next to the art dis- arts okay. district. Okay. Yeah, the That's arts district is well. The arts district is coming alive. It's such a cool place. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I don't think I've ever been near the art district. It's well, I think it's been there for a long time, but yeah. it hasn't become you know quote unquote the arts district until yeah. recent history. Yeah. So um, lots of breweries, lots of very hip and trendy oh, okay. restaurants and foods, you know, eateries and that sort of thing. Um, great restaurants. Eatery sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so we'll get into the topic today. Again, we're talking about multifamily and affordable housing. And just as a quick lesson to, to the listeners, there's different types of multifamily uh, housing. There's duplexes, there's triplexes, quadplexes, semi-detached units, townhomes, apartments, mixed-use, uh, and then apartment communities, just to name a few of the configurations. Um, so I'm sure there's some other stuff that I'm probably missing. But um, we brought in a guest today to help us with this conversation. He's a principal and sits on the board of directors of KTGY Architecture and Planning. As part of the new generation of leadership at KTGY, he is instrumental to the expansion and increased design profile of the firm. He specializes in urban infill residential and mixed-use developments with work across the United States and internationally. In addition, he has a substantial portfolio of campus housing and specialty projects, including affordable developments and recreation facilities. As a member of the board of directors, he is responsible for setting the big picture strategic vision for the firm, increasing the firm's profile and ensuring work at the highest levels. He was named Building Design and Construction Magazine's list of the industry's top 40 under 40 and has designed numerous award-winning projects from coast to coast. One more paragraph. Dude. (laughs) 
He is a frequent speaker at various national and regional industry events and has written and contributed to countless articles touching on all aspects of design and the building industry. As a lecturer and critic at the at several universities, he emphasizes the connection between the profession and academia and values mentorship as key to developing talent and integrating the most current design thinking. David Sinden. I should leave now while I'm on top. That sounds really good, man. <laughs> yeah, that's very nice. Very nice introduction. Thanks for joining us, David. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. If there's anything I left out uh, describing you that you want to mention. Oh, gosh, that was way more than I would have said. That's, <laughs> and, that's and, plenty. And Thank anything you. about KTGY that you want to mention? No, I, I, I'm here to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. But I think... Um, you know, we're as KTGY, we're always um, trying to push forward and find new and interesting and different ways of doing things. And, um, you know, we recently instituted an R&D um, studio that's a group of overhead people that do nothing but kind of look forward. And I know that's what you guys are doing here with your podcast is trying to trying to kind of look at where the industry's going. And so I'm excited to have an interesting conversation with you all. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the, the R&D process um when that was brought on other industries generally i think they generally do about i think it was like five percent like the car industry uh commit about five percent of their their budget to uh r&d but the architecture industry and probably the building industry in general is like less than one percent usually uh so yeah it's nothing it's usually in in other firms i've been with and even at kgy up until very recently it was uh yeah, let's stay after work for a bit and have a beer and we'll see what we can come up with and we'll call that R&D. Yeah. Um, we decided it needs to be a little bit more than that. Yeah, so you guys have, uh, have really taken on this this whole new life with the R&D program, coming up with a lot of different uh, projects. One we'll speak about uh, specifically the Rehab, um, rehab It yep. project. Mm-hmm. So, um, But before we, we get into our, our full-on full on discussion, I um, want to just kind of highlight where we've come from as far as multifamily housing. And to understand that, got to go back in time. Second century AD. Rome. Urban congestion led to the development of the insula, an early form of apartment which had shops and businesses on the ground floor and up to six or seven stories of living space above for ordinary people of lower or middle class status. Due to safety concerns, the rental price actually decreased the higher you went in the building. A more luxurious version of the apartment appeared in Paris and throughout Europe during the 18th century. By the mid-19th century, large numbers of inexpensive apartment houses were under construction to house the influx of industrial laborers across Europe and in the United States. In New York City, the population almost doubled each decade between 1800 and 1880. Immigrants began to flow into the city, many of them fleeing famine in Ireland or revolution in Germany. Buildings that were once single-family dwellings were divided into multiple living spaces to accommodate the rapidly growing population. These buildings were often incredibly shabby, poorly designed, unsanitary, and cramped. Multiple unit tenements were being constructed in the 1830s, but these were not considered to be true apartments because the units did not include a private toilet. That's Sue Creedy, a reference librarian for the New York Historical Society. The Stuyvesant Building, located at 142 East 18th Street and designed by the famous architect Richard Morris Hunt, is generally regarded as the first apartment building in New York. It was constructed between 1869 and 1870. While the Stuyvesant building opened the door for new apartments, tenement buildings very much so still existed. The Tenement House Act of 1867 legally defined a tenement for the first time and set construction regulations. Among these were the requirement of one toilet per 20 people. However, the existence of the legislation did not guarantee its enforcement, and conditions minimally improved. In 1890, 
Danish-born author and photographer Jacob Rees published his book, How the Other Half Lives. In it, he highlighted conditions, such as the fact that 12 adults slept in a room that was 13 feet across, and that the infant death rate in tenements was as high as 1 in 10. The vivid photos that accompanied his descriptions stunned many in America and around the world, and led to a renewed call for reform. By 1900, more than 80,000 tenements had been built in New York City alone. They housed a population of 2.3 million people, two-thirds of the city's total population of around 3.4 million. In 1901, city officials passed the Tenement House Law, which outlawed the construction of new tenements on 25-foot lots and mandated improved sanitary conditions, fire escapes, and access to light. Under this new law, pre-existing tenement structures were updated and more than 200,000 new apartments were built over the next 15 years. Modern large apartment buildings emerged in the early 20th century with the incorporation of elevators, central heating, and other conveniences that could be shared in common by a building's tenants. Apartment living took a dip in the 1930s when President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal attracted many middle-class apartment dwellers into new single-family homes. The flight to the suburbs depleted vibrant populations in the city and eventually the conditions. After the 1950s, there was a resurgence in urbanization and apartments for the well-to-do began to offer other amenities. But as we see of late, rising land values have complicated the development process, as Diana Olick of CNBC reports. Hey, and so if you want or can afford a swanky luxury apartment like this one, fantastic, because there are lots and lots of them and landlords are giving away concessions. But that is not the case in the rest of the rental market where more affordable apartments are desperately needed and rents are still rising, driving inflation. Multifamily construction is now at a 40 year high. Completions last year jumped 46% from 2016, more than doubling the long-term average, that according to RealPage. The trouble is 80% of that is luxury. Why? Because of the high costs of land, labor, and materials. Construction costs up 1% per month for the last 36 months. The U.S. population, currently 325.7 million citizens, is projected to surpass 398 million by 2050. In 2014, 54% of the world's population lived in urban areas, which is expected to increase to 66% by 2050. Real estate planners and home builders anticipate accommodating this growth with new multifamily dwellings in the once vibrant cities that suffered when large portions of their population moved to suburbs. But it's not just urban cores that will experience revivals. Even suburban areas will become more marketable because of self-driving cars and environmentally friendly mass transit systems. Societal changes, including sharing economy, robotics, Internet of Things devices, and automation may make multifamily housing developments as desirable as single-dwelling homes were in mid-century America. However, rising land value will continue to make affordability a concern for the foreseeable future. Forward-thinking concepts of communal living, prefabricated housing, 3D printing, rezoning and redevelopment of underutilized land, and much more will provide exciting opportunities to creatively alleviate affordability issues and provide attractive solutions in the future. Well, I'm glad they named rezoning as one way to solve an affordability problem. Yeah. What's really interesting, I actually pulled up an article that was uh, published yesterday in the Los Angeles Times paper, and the headline reads, experts say California needs to build a lot more housing, (laughs) but the public disagrees. And so the devil is in the details. This concept that the public disagrees that we need more housing, yet they all agree that we have an affordability issue. So perhaps we need to go back to basic economics, supply and demand. Yeah. I mean, everything can go back to basic economics, right? Supply and demand will tell you basically everything. Yeah, it seems like the public may be missing that concept, though. And and really, the issue, all of those things are true, and and multifamily housing is one way to uh, solve or address affordability. And it's worked in many, many cases. 
but it really goes down or, or comes down to providing more housing. Yeah. Now, you brought up an interesting point, dealing with the public. David, can you provide some insight? I'm sure you had to kind of go to the city council to discuss a project. Um, yeah, how- as, as little as I can. But uh, <laughs> yeah, for that reason, exactly, is um, nobody... Nobody seems to be able to put the two things together. The same, the same people that are arguing that they're um, that they don't want something built next to them are the same people that are arguing that their kids can't afford to live in the same city as they do, yeah. and they can't seem to square that. Um, but I, I can sort of see it if you if you worked your if you worked your whole life to save up to buy a house, um, you got your little piece of paradise. And you loved it, and it was all you could, all you could do to make the payments. And you sacrificed, and you skimped, and you saved. And then you lived there for twenty years, thirty years, and then somebody came and said, "Next door to you, I'm going to build a four or five story building. And yeah. It's going to be in your backyard, and uh, we have to do this for the good of the for the good of the country." Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I might have a problem with it too. So, I I mean, it really depends on your perspective, but I do see more and more at uh, planning commission meetings, city council meetings, um, people that just simply want to pull up the drawbridge. And um, I got my piece of paradise. It's up to you to figure out how to get yours and stay away from me. Um, It's really tough to think that you can um, have a civilized society like that. Yeah. And which means that you run into all these other societal problems that we have when you can't when you can't and it's not just about buying a house um it's about affording rent um it's mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a lot of things that sort of trickle down when you don't um when you don't let people build more yeah so. i'm going through that right now actually the timing of this episode is uh just perfect well, maybe we can do a little therapy for you yeah my my rent uh just got notified my rent's increasing uh probably about six percent so um, not happy. We've been here for four years. Well, there's uh, so much supply. You'll have no problem. There's so much supply in, in Irvine if you wish to stay in Irvine. They're building like crazy here. But it's all luxury, like high, high end luxury stuff where it's a ridiculous amount of money to, to get into some of these apartments now. But the, but the point is if you can keep building kind of at every price, if you build enough luxury apartments, yeah. the other stuff gets more affordable. That's right? what I was just. I, mean, at I was some, gonna, at yeah. some point, and the way it's the way it's worked forever is that um, it trickles down. Yeah. The, you build at the top of the market because that's where construction costs are. The A plus stuff goes for the super luxury wealthy wealthy renters. The B stuff, C stuff. I mean, it all sort of trickles down. That's the way it should happen yeah. if you're building enough supply. We're just not building enough supply. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I was going to say. So I say that we're building to my. What I said earlier contradicts what <laughs> where I started, which is in Irvine. You are correct. They are building luxury, high end, class A product. Yeah. But what needs to happen is people that are living in the older units need to leave those older units and move up because they've either saved enough or they're ready to move to the next thing, mm-hmm. which then frees up the units. To to your point. That, uh, that other people can then filter into those. Mm-hmm. And it's a continuum, and you yeah. need that continuum. But it doesn't work if we're not actually building enough units for all income levels. Yeah. I think that's the missing piece is units for all income levels. I, and I think we've reached the point where we're done with apartment life. <laughs> we're uh, we're, we're going to start actively saving probably to go to the house route, go down the house route um, pretty soon here. But... Um, yeah, it's been, it's been, a frustrating process lately. <laughs> well, and it leads to the, it leads to a discussion about Prop 10. And I don't know if, um, how, how familiar you guys are with the, with Proposition 10 that's coming up on the ballot here that would, um, that would, um, eliminate, uh, Costa Hawkins, which is a rent control, um, mm. and, and allow cities to impose rent control restrictions in their jurisdictions. So, and that's what happens if you have enough renters with enough, pressure put on them with landlords raising rents um, year after year after year, lease after lease. Eventually a renter says, I can't handle this anymore. What are my options? You don't have option to go build and have control of this macro economy. So you say, gosh, there should be a law. (laughs) And you start lobbying your, your, um, your, your, 
representatives yeah. to to pass some law that will set your rent at a certain level then nobody moves because you have rent control so now i'm staying here forever yeah which is great for you but it doesn't help uh, anybody looking for a place yeah so. yeah creates kind of a stagnant uh Totally. totally. Well, and if you look at places that have had rent control, San Francisco, Santa Monica, they're the most expensive places in that's the country point. to live. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Um, yeah, rent, rent control is certainly not the answer. I, I think that's what you're the Yeah, point you're, it's, the not, point the, you're it's making not the answer, but I can totally understand prop, why somebody would... Yeah, would, Prop 10 has, has all sorts of unintended consequences that don't really address the issue. And the issue, you know, if you go back to in the history section where we talk about rezoning, you know, mm-hmm. rezoning is a solution where you change land that is underutilized, that's obsolete, that's not being maximized to its full and best potential, and you repurpose that land. But you can only do that if you have common sense practices that are coming from a jurisdictional level, whether it's your city, your county, or your state, that are allowing properties to change land use mm-hmm. to provide additional housing opportunities. And that's not to say that you're just literally putting housing everywhere. There has to be a common sense uh, component to it of, you know, does a two-story townhome make sense next to a two-story single-family detached? I think you can make the argument that absolutely that does. Mm -hmm. Does a five-story podium building make sense to a single-family, single-story neighborhood? Absolutely not. You can make that argument as well. But we need to start thinking about how we repurpose properties that really are not being used as a way to facilitate additional growth and development and, and home building to help address the housing shortage issue, which then helps address the housing affordability issue. And I think on a city side, you need to have more of uh, those sort of open form or um, open conversations with residents to develop that bridge to get people to understand and not shut down immediately when they hear that there's going to be construction near them. Cause I think a lot of people quickly just, once they hear that there's construction, they immediately just go blind and it's like, I don't want to talk about anything. Right. Yeah. I don't I'm, think it's just about construction though. I think people just don't like change. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you and tell change them and uncertainty, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. tell them you're going to build a money factory next to them and they can have free samples and they'll Fire still them. not want it built. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, I, I think it, you know, we we've talked about some redevelopments of some pretty some pretty janky areas, yeah. and uh, and they still come out and fight you. So we have a we have a project in Hollywood that's a gas station, and it's a it's a known problem in the community. There's people hanging out, all sorts of uh, sort of undesirable elements, and we were going to put a very small, very small. I, I say very small, but um, a multifamily project there, and um, and we've been in and sort of in the public process for over three years now um we've been going through lawsuits um this has it's a hundred units but it's um uh like i think 15 or 16 of them are are affordable well below market market rate um and yeah it's been a just a nightmare to get through the public process because you've got You've got people up the hill in Los Feliz that want to fight about it because they got theirs and they don't want anybody down the hill to cause them a little bit more traffic. Although we're replacing a gas station. So yeah. how much more traffic are we um, <laughs> going to generate? And it's just, but that's those small instances all over the whole region that um, just grind this to a halt. Yeah. And then also have to be factored into the cost of all of this construction. So as soon as you have to go through three years of an entitlement process um, and fight lawsuits, that gets passed along to somebody at some point. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Wow. Going before we kind of move past the the Prop Ten, because I, I do appreciate that that was brought up. I, I think it's entirely relevant to this conversation and very timely, given that we all should be voting in three <laughs> weeks. And if you're not registered, shame on you. Um, go vote and i want to urge that you do your own research as well you can take our this uh, isn't the point where you cut away to tell them your recommendations (laughs) not not in this before we continue this conversation (laughs) i I think there needs to be some yeah obviously educate yourself and each person is entitled to their own uh vote or in their own opinion but but make sure you go past just the headlines and go past just the commercials. I mean, really do the research Definitely. and think about what the consequences are, both short-term and long-term. But yeah. the point I want to make, and it's an, an analogy I heard very recently about rent control 
and it goes to a farming and sort of a a situation in which, let's just say, hypothetically, the world was in a famine, we wouldn't say to the farmer, you know, because we're in a famine, we're going to tell you that you can no longer sell corn for more than a dollar. Mm-hmm. We would say, no, you can sell corn as much as you want. You got to produce more of it. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's just kind of this concept of why do we tax or slow down the process of producing homes? Mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't do that if, if we were all starving to death. We'd want to incentivize as best as we could every farmer or food producer to produce as quickly as they possibly could. Yeah. But then you'd have the guy that was having a problem because you plowed under his front lawn to po- to, to seed <laughs> corn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's always something. Uh, so historically, multifamily housing has been sort of the solution to an affordable option for housing. And one of the projects that, w- that I mentioned earlier that you guys have uh, have done is sort of on an extreme solution side of that, right? The the rehab it project, yeah, yeah. Um, addressing homelessness as as that that solution. You know, can you talk? Yeah, a no, bit about- absolutely. Um, you know, we're always looking at different different ideas about housing, but um, there's been so much. I mean, it's it's so in your homelessness is so in your face yeah. now, um, and it's such a problem. Um, that we thought we would be kind of remiss about how how much um, of our living is based on providing housing if we didn't um, give something back. And so we started looking from an R and D standpoint, just what could we um, what could we do that was a little different than everybody else? If you Google um, architect solution homeless, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a million entries. There's people hanging pods off of bridges and creating push carts that can origami into some sort of shelter. <laughs> yeah. There's there's all kinds of different things. So we're not at a lack of design solutions. Um, but um, part of our part of our studio um, or has been looking at revitalizing shopping malls and um, and that there's lots of opportunity in big boxes that are either obsolete or they're in a failing mall or something. And we thought, how could you repurpose those um, in a way that could maybe be um, a, ca- a, a catalyst to helping this situation of homelessness? And um, but as we were as we were researching, um, we went and met with the folks that run the Long Beach Rescue Mission and talked to them. That led to us doing a pro bono project for the Long Beach Rescue Mission, which we'll, we may be able to talk about in a minute. But um, we had a lot of insight just into um, the people that they help that are experiencing homelessness um, and how um, it's not so much about just providing a bed. It's about providing... Um, a curriculum to move through and a process to change your life. And these are chronically homeless that we're talking about. We're not talking about because your rent got raised 6% and you're going to have to go live with mom and dad for a little bit until you can figure it out. That's, that's homelessness too. And that's a problem, but we're really talking about people with, um, for the most part, addiction or mental health issues that, um, really need, they really need some societal, um, help. And so, um, and that's, kind of where the name rehabit came from. So the idea is that you could you could take one of the big box and you could break it into pieces and have a curriculum where you come in through the front door. And we we do a lot of um, seniors housing that's 55 plus and um, and we have something we call uh, CCRC, which is a continuing care community um, where you come in and you're you're fairly independent and you can um, and you can function for yourself, but by staying in the same community, um, as you age, you can get a, uh, a greater level of care. And we sort of looked at this in the opposite. You come in needing help. Um, and throughout your stay there, you come out the other side as a, as a fully, fully developed and functioning person that's, um, gotten a rehab it. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what it's about. So and you'd, you'd come in and you'd meet with counselors. You'd have a way to, um, you'd stay in, uh, in a group setting where there's maybe, um, 20 person in a pod dorm. And then as you progress through, you get a greater and greater sense of privacy. 
greater and greater sense of responsibility in running the place. So maybe there's an organic garden there that you tend their shops and such associated because it's by a mall that you could then start to work in and um, develop some responsibility with some oversight. And, and we think you could do that on a pretty big scale. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where it came from. And we're, you know, in the R and D world, we're not thinking of it, that this is um, anybody would go out and build this exactly like we've yeah. envisioned it. It's more sort of the, the car at the auto show where, um, yeah, it won't come to market exactly like this, but here's an idea. Kind of let's thought, let's let's get around the table. Let's get around yeah. the table and move it move it forward. And um, I get so tired of, uh, and it's with good intentions, but I get so tired of seeing in the newspaper all these people with ground shovel gold shovels breaking ground <laughs> on 15 beds of homeless housing here, and there's another 10 over there, and it just uh, it's just a drop in the ocean of what's needed. And so yeah. we just need to start thinking about it in a much bigger bigger way. And I think in California, we get stuck between this, um, this people's rights and who am I to tell people how to live? Mm -hmm. Um, if they want to be on the street, I can't tell them not to be on the street, but we, we wouldn't let dogs live like that. If there was a dog sleeping on the street, yeah. we would go and we would pick them up yeah. and we would give them the, a meal and a warm place That's to a sleep. Good point. Yeah. And we let, and we let people, um, we let people lay on the street and yeah. I think it's just, it's just uh, kind of heart wrenching to yeah. think that you have to step over people to get where you need to go. It's um, and we can, we can do better than that. And so uh, that's the, the rehabbit thing is just one little piece of us trying to help do better than that. Yeah. And you guys have gotten a lot of um, attention kind of from that, from this project. I think I saw it in Forbes. Yeah. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Forbes, Forbes picked up on it and I don't know, somehow just by, um, caring a little bit that uh, yeah. we've, um, I don't know, I've, I've been to council district 14 councilman Huizar's office. And I walked in there and they said, uh, we saw this rehabit project that you did and we're really interested. And can you help us? And I said, well, what do you, what are you guys trying to do? And they said, well, we have, we have trouble with skid row. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you want me to clean up skid row? I don't, I don't think that, I think you might've got the wrong guy. I think it's going to take more than that, but we hope that maybe by finding a consortium of people, designers, um, designers, landowners, service providers, mental health experts, substance abuse experts, politicians, if you can come together to charrette on this and try to look at the big picture problem, then maybe there's a solution in there um, rather than like all these people trying to work at it alone, doing little tiny bits that don't make that much difference yeah. in the end. Yeah. Um, so. so I think that's... The good news is I think there is some light that is beginning to shine through. And, and part of that is with, um, you know, at least here locally in Orange County, the passage of AB 448, I believe. Uh, so there's now a housing trust, which is um, together working to provide 2,700 units of per permanent supportive housing. And that's one component of solving homelessness. Uh, full disclosure, I'm actually on the board of directors for Homemade Orange County. So our mission is very simple and homelessness. And we do that through three pillars, if you will, uh, advocacy, um, development, and outreach. Um, and so, you know, I think that's it's great what the Rehabit Project, uh, there's a lot of ways you can go. And you're absolutely right, getting a lot of people together to talk about the issue and brainstorm and shred on not only how do you solve from a design standpoint because that's one component of it but really it's how do you fund it and how again going back to our earlier conversation getting the political will behind it and getting the public behind it because there you are spot on that there are a lot of people who don't have compassion or empathy or even the patience to try and understand a situation of another human being and that really is the root of the problem right there well, and you can see that in Koreatown in L.A., um, as soon as it was announced that they were going to build a, uh, a shelter, um, the protests came out. I mean, everybody was very upset about homelessness in their in their neighborhood, but they don't want a shelter in their neighborhood. So they would yeah. rather, I think, just take a bus and collect everyone and drive them somewhere where they don't have to look at them. And <laughs> they do that um, in the 70s. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. But um, I think, too, as long as we think of homelessness as simply a housing issue... Uh, I, I think it 
we can't, we won't solve it. I mean, there's a substance abuse, abuse problem. There's a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two things need to be addressed, um, in a way bigger way than just providing beds. Because if you, if you provide housing and you provide beds for people, but they can't take care of themselves and they can't take care of a place to sleep or live, um, that, doesn't help anyone so yeah. we have to fi- we have to figure that part out right and so, there hasn't so, been nearly enough emphasis on that right and you could go back to the 80s and and look at federal funding that was abandoned if you will or abolished i'm not quite sure what the right word is um that took away those types of services for people who need it and we've sort of as a society have have turned our our backs on that it just it's awful yeah so i'm going to Pull out of the, so this is this is a fun discussion. Yeah, right now, right? I, I want to pull out of the <laughs> the homelessness part because we did a, a full episode. You can go back and, and listen to that episode if you like more detail on that, um, and talk a little more generally about uh, uh, multifamily housing. So, David, in your in your experience thus far, what has been kind of the your design process or approach when you get multifamily? housing projects oh gosh it really depends what what we're doing and where we're doing it so ktgy does all kinds of multifamily housing and all the all the typologies that you mentioned from from uh from a couple of units uh pushed together to townhouses to high rise Um, and so it really depends where you are i'm always an advocate for more density is better just because of the conversation we've been having Mm -hmm. um but um but i also you know i just personally like um buildings that affect a city um, and so that's something that we think of all the time is how are we um, not just affecting the the end users that are going to live there. And that's mm-hmm. important. But when you're doing a, a big development, um, you're affecting everybody that drives by that project every day. Yeah. Um, and so you have a big uh, responsibility to the community at large to um, do kind of the right thing for them. And so sometimes that's purely aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and everybody... Everybody can have an opinion on that. And so since we're doing it, we think ours is the best opinion <laughs> on that. But um, but so some of it's that, some of it's scale and massing and uh, how, how things are cited. Um, but but I think first and foremost, when we're thinking about it is how does it fit into a neighborhood? Yeah. Um, and what, is it, what does it do um, once it's been there? So on that point of kind of giving back to the, the community, um, I know of some of the ways that some of the projects have done. So can you explain a couple elements that, that you've done? Well, and when I'm talking about giving back, you know, sometimes we stand in front of planning commissions and city councils and you get held hostage a little bit about um, public benefits. What are you going to give back to the community? And what they mean is that you're going to put some money towards park or you're going (laughs) to, or you're going to repave a road or there's going to be some fancy light post or something that are going to go in. And that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more, um, how you engage the street, how yeah. you make a pedestrian friendly connection from across a, a piece of a block yeah. um, that can be built on as people develop next to you. Um, how, you know, kind of how you don't cast big shadows on public parks or th- those sorts of things, I think, are trying to be kind of a good neighbor. Yeah. Um, at all trying to balance it with the just project economics and all that that needs to go together too. Yeah. So one of the projects that I was thinking of, I cannot remember the name of it specifically, but I, I believe there was a um, sort of a daycare on the corner. This might have been actually a R&D project. Well, we, di- we, you know, we've got a lot of R&D projects. And if you're talking about daycare, so we, we have spent a lot of time with a, with a project called the Urban Nest. Um, and it was, yeah. and it was yeah. our thinking about how do families live in the city? Mm-hmm. Um, because we've been designing for the last decade, a bunch of, a bunch of projects that are for, um, young professionals with no kids, either single or couples with dual income, um, working at a pretty high level. Um, and we thought, well, what happens when, what happens when these folks couple up and they want to have kids and, now they've grown to love this community that they live in. We've been pushing them downtown. It's this great place to be. Uh, they've got to move to the suburbs because yeah. they've yeah. got a kid. Yeah. So how could we take um, how could we take one of our um, 
kind of typical downtown projects and design it differently so that a family could live there. And you don't automatically make more money so that you you couldn't just say, well, the units are just going to get way bigger (laughs) because you couldn't then afford them. So we took kind of the units that um, we had done for um, like the average sizes that we would normally do in a project that was geared toward young professionals with no kids and said, how could we design these a little differently? And we did things like uh, built-in storage and drop zones for backpacks and place to park the stroller off of the off of the corridor without bringing it into your unit and sliding doors that open spaces up. So if you, at least to the point that you had a toddler, you could stay in these places. Once they get to school age, I don't know, we can't do anything about the school system <laughs> yeah. in downtown locations. But maybe if you can create a critical mass of people there, maybe then there's the impetus for a charter school or something. And so we thought, and then it's about how do the amenities change? Could you do a daycare as part of the amenities? Could you do arts and crafts rooms and a splash park instead of a swimming pool? Those kind of things. So, um, And that was just an R&D concept thinking about, gosh, could we, could we, could we really have families? There's you know big portions of the world where... Uh, families grow up in the city yeah. um, and you don't have yeah. to f- look too hard to f- to find them. Um, but for some reason, in most of this country, we think, oh, if you have a kid, you need to be out of the city. You yeah. need to go to some suburb. So that was, that was kind of where that was going. Yeah. You mentioned that. So the family uh, component that can be uh, complexity. What are some, some other common issues that you tend to either have to resolve or are trying to resolve when you approach uh, designing a, a multi Well, there's a ton of, uh, I mean, we've been talking about affordability. So that's, that's key. And so, and you mentioned, I think also communal housing. Yeah. Um, and we've been, we've been doing a lot of communal, communal housing studies where you're not just doing micro units. Micro units have been done a lot too. So that's one way to, um, handle affordability is just shrink the size of the yeah. unit. Are you are you guys on board with the micro unit for the the millennials? And no, there? I've seen it. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to me. Like, I don't, I can't imagine living in something like that. Well, it, you, yeah, you got two kids. Yeah, well, but even <laughs> even when we were looking at the concept, that I think we looked at that when we were doing tiny houses too. Yeah, if I probably. remember correctly, I think we were looking at a micro unit at the time. Yeah, and, no, I take it back. I know what it is. A friend of ours in the industry, it's actually on the model home design, has another friend. I don't think it was in Texas, so I may be saying this wrong, but where they were looking at doing micro units. And yeah. it was like, you know, it was a, I don't know if it was a podium build or what it was, but it was highly dense, obviously. And they came to me to ask him about cabinetry because they wanted to do a bunch of different things, so like almost like Murphy bed type stuff and those types of things. Yeah. And I just remember looking at this plan going, oh my gosh, I don't know how you just like, don't feel claustrophobic living in there, you know, but it was really, is really intelligent on how it was laid out. Yeah. I thought it was really, really cool from that perspective, from a problem solving perspective and just an efficiency type yeah. matrix, but I can't place myself in there. Like Dude, there's a lot more thought that goes into planning out a, a micro unit oh. and built in units and oh yeah, it has to efficiency be. because it's just, you, you cannot waste any space whatsoever. Yeah. Like I always laugh because it was funny. Like I said, that it was a model design firm that um, I was talking to, but I always laugh because we go through a model walk Yeah, or like a frame thing. They don't know what to do. So what do they do? Put a tree, right? It's like, it's, if you don't, if you, <laughs> Like these little weird niches that occur in housing, you know what I mean? It's like they don't know what to do with the space, so they like put a plant. Yeah. It's always like a plant. I don't know if you've ever seen that or ever (laughs) noticed that, but you'll notice it now. Yeah. But it was, it's, I can only imagine how hard it was to to deliver something like that that can actually work and be efficient. Not that I'd want to be in it, but you have to have an appreciation for it because everything is so well thought out as far as exactly what you're going to do with this particular space and how you're going to get some usability out of it. And micro units are what three or they're like three hundred and below. Well, it really de- it really depends where you are. You know, if you're in Texas, they yeah. probably think five hundred square feet. So <laughs> yeah, micro I don't unit. think it was Texas, but but, uh, but, but yeah, but yeah, and you know, so there's been that discussion, and it really um, has led us to what we called a macro unit, where um, it's one unit but put eleven bedrooms in it. And so you're not, we're taking the kitchens completely out of those units and you're going to share them with uh, 10 roommates. Oh, okay. And so that probably even seems um, crazier to you. Well, that sounds more <laughs> um, like, 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 
living with you know like, like sports you know what i mean like in like dorm dorm, dorm, yeah. dorm well and that's that is the idea is that you're doing this for <clears throat> you're doing this for people that have graduated from college recently and they're okay. used to it they're yeah. used to that sort of a living Communal arrangement space. and yeah. you're not doing it everywhere when we talk we have we have offices across the country and if i talk to our denver office about this they go oh my no god <laughs> sardines in a can how could it just kind of like yeah. what you're saying <laughs> yeah how could you live yeah. like that that's 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 disastrous. <laughs> and then I talk to our Oakland office and they say, Heck yeah, what do you Why got? only 11? How's the chore wheel work? We could get this to work. You know, so it really depends on your reference point and how badly you want to live in a particular spot yeah. that you can't afford to live anywhere right. else. And so we have definitely seen that. And you've probably talked about it on your podcast about millennials, um, uh, priority shifting a bit in terms yeah. of, I think, you know, from my generation, gen, solidly Gen X, um, <laughs> it was it was about um, so, size of things, and we'd be happy to drive a little bit if we could have what we yeah. wanted to where we wanted it. And it is flip flop now, where um, millennials' location is at the top of the list, mm-hmm. and if I have to live smaller or or squeeze into something with roommates to be in the place where I want to be so I don't have to drive so far or I can walk to get a drink right. or to have dinner. Uh, I'd, I'd take that. So, um, so I think that design is adapting to that and it's mostly looking at what's the absolute rent that somebody could pay <laughs> and how much does it cost to, to build that much space? That's how much we're going to offer. Yeah. So if in any given market, that's 200 square feet, that's what you'll, that's what you get. Or if it's more than that. So, um, I think that's how developers are running that pro forma. Yeah, like I said, it's really interesting that what you guys are able to come up with in designing all these types of things, whether it's the communal space ones or the micro units or whatever it is, because it just has to be so efficient. And it's difficult. I mean, there's a lot of times you walk products and it's like, it's kind of a waste. You know, it just eliminates all of that, which is really cool. Well, those are the ones that get me the most excited or the ones that become a bit of a puzzle. And you, you sort of start yeah. start pushing the pieces around and want, and you know you've got it when you can't take anything away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and that's that's exciting to me. That whole process is pain. I would imagine <laughs> that's a whole lot of ee and over and over and over again. Yeah, right? Well, yeah. just on the design side of, you know, stripping away, stripping away, trying to make it more and more efficient. And then finally you get to that point. It's yeah, like, but that you just get this tingly feeling that comes all over you yeah. when you hit it right. I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle, did you have something? Oh. Nope. nope. She did have a very pensive look on her face. Yeah. So I can verify that. I, I was only going to add that the conversation, going way back to your question of what do we think about micro units, it's kind of like asking the question, what do you think about tandem parked garages? Oh. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is when you hear people come up to the dais when a project is going before a city council for approval and you have people saying well who wants to live in a tandem in a in a home that has a tandem parked garage <laughs> and the answer is there are thousands upon thousands of people that want to live there because it gives them the ability because we've used density as a as a solution to get to a price point that these homeowners can afford mm-hmm. And they're fine. Either they're young professionals and they are single and they're buying their first home and they only have one car anyways, or they're happy to make it work with their partner, yeah. their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend, whoever they're sharing the unit with. Yeah. And so to your question about micro units, I, yeah, that doesn't work for me right now, but I guarantee there are people who would be thrilled to yeah. have a space and will make it work and don't maybe have the same attachments to things and don't need, you know, quote unquote space. Similar to, you know, if you did 11 bedrooms, that sounds crazy, but, but I can also think about, yeah, when I was in college, particularly when I studied abroad, we lived in that exact format. It was, you know, 20 bedrooms on the first floor and 20 bedrooms on the second floor. And there was a kitchen on the first floor and a kitchen on the second floor. And it was a communal living area, and that's just how you, you we lived that way with all the international students who were who were studying well, abroad at so, the time. Yeah, and so imagine if you were um, if you were graduating from from college in in Texas and you got a tech degree and you were moving to Silicon Valley and you wanted to live in San Francisco, you know nobody. Yeah. Um, how great would it be to move into a place a, with ten people yeah. that are all all working on their startups or Demetrius, they're all working on their podcasts. Yeah. It's a phenomenal, yeah, no, it's a phenomenal solution and it it does not work for everyone, but there is a population. And I think when we're faced with the housing 
shortage that we have and the affordability issues that we have, why not kind of attack it with every product solution out there? Yeah. And there, there, there are a few projects that exist that are the communal living or the micro units and they're uh, successful for that, you know, that market that they're trying to hit. It takes a, it take, you know, you have a pretty progressive attitude though, because it is, it is challenging to get developers to think this way sometimes because they're all led by these, um, these old guys that live <laughs> yeah, in 10,000 yeah, square foot yeah. houses out in the suburbs and can't, can't put themselves into that. Um, it it that. goes to, you're spot on. It goes to what Larry Webb, uh, yep. the CEO of um, the new home company says all the time that, that currently our industry is led by a lot of old white men. <laughs> and fortunately that's changing. And, and I think if we were having this conversation in probably 10 years, because I think it's going to change a lot quicker than we can imagine right now. But I think that, kind of progressive attitudes going to change, particularly as Gen X ages and, and especially as the millennials age and start to fill the seats at the boardroom tables and females start to fill the seats at the boardroom tables and you get diversity of, of populations, both of color and ethnicity, ethnicity and sex and gender and all of it. And you have those types of people that are leading, um, I'll get off my my soapbox no, here, that's but, right. that's but right. I think and it's going to change. <laughs> the same thing. The same thing has to happen at banks, also, so that we can actually get. You can actually get, get money. Financed. Yeah, yeah, you can get exactly. money to build it. So, yeah, uh, David. Before we we wrap up, I, I want to make sure I get these couple questions thrown at yeah. you. Is there a design element that you've done, or I guess seen, that has fallen flat? Oh, fallen flat. Yeah. Never, right? <laughs> Not one that we've done, Demetrius. <laughs> Never. Um, no, I mean, I think there. You're always anytime you anytime you look to do new things. There's always some risk involved, um, and I think we've seen that in different amenity spaces over okay. the over the years. Where um, just depends because those things are so specific to whatever whatever user group is. So sometimes we've we've maybe put a wine room or wine tasting and then it turns out that the people aren't at all interested in wine <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so so some of that's us and some of that's the the property management people not kind of gauging the 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 demographics of the people that would be moving in but i think think we've we've had those slip ups before but nothing that was like a colossal fairy failure yeah um the only times i see things is uh you know we always run into trouble at the uh the value engineering stage of a project <laughs> where things that I think were really important to the design um, get taken away kind yeah. of at the last minute. So we spend a lot of time in our firm, you know, looking at um, how can we design in things that are integral to the project that can't be taken out later yeah. that make it. Because hmm. as soon as, by the time you get to the point of thinking that you're over budget, if you're not kind of checking all the way along there, you can get over budget at the end. And then the only thing that's left is to strip stuff off the outside of the, out of the building. And, and that's the stuff that people notice and care about the most. Yeah. And so we're, we're always really conscious of kind of paying attention all the way through and not going through some, um, I don't know, some structural gymnastics or something that's very expensive that people won't be able to see and feel and touch and mm -hmm. putting kind of the money into that. And so we, we kind of have that in our DNA, I think. Yeah. Um, um, that's not the question you asked me, but no, it's that's a good, good answer though. <laughs> good, good, good answer. Um, and then what, this is sort of a, a bigger, uh, question. What would you suggest that designers and builders do today to improve multifamily housing going forward? Oh, um, talk more to each other and understand each other more. I mean, I think we sometimes have, um, we have clients, developers and builders that, um, thinking, think of us as a commodity. Um, mm -hmm. and so let's go, let's just go get an architect. It doesn't matter. <laughs> let's, um, and so trying to understand it from that. And I think from our standpoint, we always try to understand the business. Um, mm -hmm. and so that we understand how, um, we're spending somebody else's dollars. And if we can understand each other's businesses a little bit more, I think the end result of the design is better. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and sort of respecting each of the players in the process along um, is really important. So I, th I think that's probably the thing that um, would be um, nice if we could get a little bit more of that yeah. going on. 
it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, it just reminded me randomly of talking more and that kind of filtering all the way through the process of the design as well and thinking to create spaces where residents talk more um, have all these issues lately of the uh, apartment patties uh, that block I don't know if you guys saw that uh, recent story where one of the residents blocked another resident from entering the apartment because she thought he was a, a no good person and trying to infiltrate their apartment hmm. and then she followed him all the way to his apartment just kind of berating him uh didn't think he lived there so people not having spaces where they kind of interact and can create a community um, well as the units get smaller and smaller you can't invite a friend <laughs> over if there's nowhere for him to sit so yeah. those those communal spaces become more and more important yeah uh, I mean, if you sure. look at it, it's almost like even though it's just one building, right, that we're talking about primarily in the communal spaces, that's kind of the idea if you think about a master plan. Yeah. Right? So you're really just taking the same idea where we're single families and everything because all they've been doing is shrinking things down yard-wise and that type of deal. And then you've got communal spaces, the pool, the parks, or whatever it is. It's just on a bigger scale. Well, we've talked about a high-rise as a vertical cul-de-sac many times. That yeah. It's just yeah. A, I mean, it, when you when you describe it the way you're describing it, that, that's what comes to mind. You know, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like all, all we're doing and all that's been going on is you're continuing to shrink down the playing space. Yeah. You know what I mean? That you have in your house. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I there's a project that we're working on that I was sharing with you guys earlier. I was talking about in a meeting that's not far from here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had sent you guys pictures, but you know, right over here, um, they call it central park West, right? Which you actually designed. We're working on Hudson right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's really very neat to see the whole project in I'll call what its glory actually was supposed to be from 10 years ago or whenever that project was it more More, than that. Gosh, it's been a while. And um, so it's really neat to see how it was all conceived and it's actually being done now because you're walking the streets and everything. You're going, this is pretty cool. I mean, again, centrally located area, right? With your clubhouse and your pool and that type of stuff. And it's highly dense. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially with the buildings that are going, half the buildings. So there's one, you know, that we're working on getting that thing closed with them. I mean, there's a ton of homes that are in there. And as I'm walking the units and I'll be going through there tomorrow, I'll take some pictures. Maybe we can post them or whatever. It's not bad living. It's no it's no different really than what we're in right now. Yeah. But it gives somebody the opportunity to own something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And a piece of that project. And it reminds me a lot, and you probably remember this, like was Playa Vista. Hmm. I don't know if you were involved in that type of stuff at all, but when they first started doing Playa way back when, they had all sorts of podium builds. You know what I mean? They were going everywhere around there and everything was highly walkable. Mm-hmm. This I mean, it's kind of a cool deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was actually surprisingly at the time when we were going through playa i didn't think i would like it but there's a lot of stuff that was in there that was enjoyable yeah. you know so i guess everything's just a little bit of a give and take right yeah. well you think about multifamily housing it's just an extension of this sharing culture that's caught on everywhere from from sharing cars to sharing scooters to sharing <laughs> everything yeah why not share space also yeah yeah okay thank you david yeah absolutely thanks for having me uh, that was very happy, cool have a good chat. time If you want more information on KTGY, you can check them out, ktgy.com, or you can follow them on social media, KTGY group, pretty much everywhere, uh, and the R&D studio, KTGY underscore RD studio. If you have any questions or comments about anything we talked about today, feel free to email us to hello at spacespodcast.com. Or you can connect with us on social media or Spaces Podcasts on all platforms. So thank you again. You guys don't have anything else? No, I was just going to say perhaps more of a political conversation than we intended. (laughs) (laughs) Just invite me anywhere. Yeah, that's what will happen. So thank you again for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and like it. Forward the link to a friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And check out spacespodcast.com under the listen tab for photos and notes on things we discussed today. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. We're we're trying to dig a hole um, under LA. And this is to create the beginning of what will hopefully be a 3D network of tunnels to alleviate congestion. First of all, you have to be able to integrate the entrance and exit of the tunnel 
seamlessly into the fabric of the city. So by having a, an, an elevator, sort of a, a, sort of a, a car skate that's on, on an, uh, an elevator, you can integrate the entrance and exits uh, to the tunnel network oh just by using two parking spaces. Um, and then the car gets on a skate. There's no speed limit here, so uh, we're designing this to be uh, able to operate at 200 kilometers an hour or about 130 miles per hour. Uh, so you should be able to get from, say, uh, Westwood to LAX in six minutes, five, six minutes. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.